Michael Vonnen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek. And in this video, I want to talk about the Silmarillion in a sense as a whole, but I'm going to focus on the history of the Silmarils themselves. The Silmarils being the jewels that Feanor, one of the very earliest elves and the greatest craftsman ever to live in Tolkien's Legendarium, created very early on in the history of, not technically Middle-earth, Arda. And basically show what the the history of the Silmarils, kind of how they connect basically everything, which is why the Silmarillion takes its name from these jewels. So without too much intro, let's go ahead and get started with the creation of the Silmarils. The backdrop for the creation of the Silmarils is that the elves, after being discovered in a far eastern part of Middle-earth, have been brought to Valinor, Morgoth, then known as Melkor, had been imprisoned by the other Valar and was being kept in the halls of Mondos for a long period, basically to give them a chance to cool off and maybe repent. And during this period of peace, the Noldor learn a lot from the Valar. They, you know, do a lot of different things. And the family of the elves that we're most concerned with, the Noldor, being more focused on learning and craftsmanship and that sort of thing, they spend a lot of time with the Valar Aule, who is the, the smith god, essentially, in the Legendarium. And they learn about a lot of different things. They create languages, but they also come to create gemstones. Depending on which stage of Tolkien's writings you look at, their exact role in the creation of gems is a little uncertain, and part of the problem here is that the Silmarillion never reached total completion because he was always kind of working on it, and so you're not, it's not really clear where his end, you know, his mind ended up on that subject. But one way or the other, they either create gems out of essentially other materials, or they at least come up with the idea of making gemstones out of the raw materials that we would consider gems. And so at this point, they start, you know, doing more and more beautiful gemstones and whatnot. The son of the leader of the Noldor uh, is named Feanor. He is the one who creates the Silmarils, and he's the greatest craftsman of them all. And eventually, what he does, he takes you know, the, the best materials that he can find. He also takes the light from the two trees of Valinor, which I'll have to do a video on that eventually at some point. But he takes the light of the uh, two trees, some very good materials, combines these to create three gems called the Silmarils, and they actually contain within them the light of the trees of Valinor, which, just as a reference, is basically the light source before there was a sun and moon in, in Tolkien's mythology. So these are considered the greatest works of the elves ever made, and that's there's a lot of works of the elves to be considered, so that's saying something. These, of course, uh, are considered his most prized possession as well, and he puts a lot of effort into making them. After he creates the Silmarils, Morgoth, or Melkor, is eventually released, at least briefly, uh, on the grounds that he seems to have repented, and he's basically kind of kept on a short leash, leash, kind of a, not exactly house arrest, but basically the Valar are keeping an eye on him to make sure he doesn't get in any more trouble. And he is enamored by gemstones, and the Silmarils in particular. He's 
you je jealous of the elves because the elves are loved by the Valar. He basically wants to ruin their lives, and he wants the Silmarils because they're that awesome. So he concocts a plan, and the part of the plan that gets going first is he has to kind of sow the seeds of discord. And once he starts sowing those seeds, things go downhill. So let's talk about exactly how he does that and what the result is. Morgoth has two first goals that he has to attain for his entire plan to come off. And those are sowing the seeds of distrust between the elves and the Valar, and also sowing the seeds of distrust between Feanor and his brothers. Feanor was the firstborn son of Finway, the king of the Noldor, and in giving birth, his mother died. And dying for elves, of course, doesn't mean they permanently die, but for whatever reason, she essentially never decides to reincarnate. She just kind of goes into something akin to a permanent comatose state uh, and never really comes back. So Finway eventually marries again and has two other sons, Fingolfin and Finarfin. Part of Morgoth's plan, then, is to sow the seeds of distrust between Feanor and Fingolfin, the elder of the two other sons, by getting Feanor to believe that Fingolfin wants to basically usurp his place as the rightful heir. So that gets started, and meanwhile, he's also spreading lies amongst all the elves, trying to get them to believe that the Valar brought them to Valinor so that men could rule Middle-earth. And he's trying to paint the idea that Elves really should have been in Middle-earth, ruling their own kingdoms, being their own masters, and this sort of thing. Most of the elves reject this, but even the ones who reject it do kind of, especially Feanor and some of the Noldor, they do, to some degree, kind of imbibe the, the lies and they can't quite think objectively anymore. And so what ends up happening... Morgoth eventually does steal the Silmarils. There's kind of a long story just behind that, and I don't want to get into all of it, but he starts out by killing uh, Feanor's father and then robbing a huge horde of gems, but especially the Silmarils, and escapes while Feanor and other elves are at a feast day uh, with the Valar. And there's a lot of, at some point... That feast day also involved the reconciliation of Feanor and Fingolfin, but then when they discover the theft of the Silmarils and the other jewels, things kind of fall apart again, but more so with regard to the Valar, because the Valar are trying to tell the elves, don't go after Morgoth, stay in Valinor, we can take care of him, uh, but Feanor and some of the other elves start to remember some of the things that Morgoth was telling them and remembering maybe these Valar really are trying to just keep us here. And so Feanor and his sons, and some of the older other Noldor as well on, in the other two branches of the, the lead family, they determine they are going to go to Middle-earth and uh, basically disobey the Valar. And what comes of that is the oath of Feanor, which he and his sons take. They swear an unbreakable oath which basically says that anybody who keeps a Silmaril from them will be treated as an enemy, whether they're elf, man, other, you know, mortal race, or Valar, even. If they, if a Vala keeps the Silmarils from them, they will be treated as an enemy. So it's a very serious oath, and it gets 
a lot of trouble started, and one of the first things that uh, ends up happening because of this is they try to leave Middle-earth, and they don't have any ships, and there's a huge ocean between uh, Valinor and Middle-earth, except for one location far in the north where there's really, really narrow sea, but it's frozen and hard to cross. So they ask the Tellery, some of the other elves, for their ships, because they were the shipwrights and the more they had more affinity for the ocean than the other elves. The Tellery reject it. They, they say, no, we're going to stay here like the Valar asked. And so Feanor and his sons start actually trying to kill the other elves to steal the ships. And this is kind of the first fruit of that Oath of Feanor. This, of course, leads to all sorts of things because as a result of that, uh, Mondos ends up coming to them before they actually leave Valinor entirely and basically says, because of what you've done, you're essentially going to be riddled with uh, treachery, basically is what it comes down to. I mean, he basically says that in all your efforts to defeat Morgoth, the worst enemy you're going to have is yourselves. Treachery will be your downfall. And of course, that starts almost instantly. Feanor and his sons leave Fingolfin and his uh, elves, his followers behind. Finarfin didn't even end up going with them. He went back to uh, Valinor and basically begged for pardon. Fingolfin, though, eventually also makes it to Middle-earth. But the Silmarils at this point are in the hands of Morgoth, who creates an iron crown to put them in. And part of the reason he does that is when he holds them because of the Silmarils containing the light of the trees, they essentially burn uh, the flesh of any impure or evil thing. So he can't really hold them. He puts them in a crown. And that's the last that we really hear of the Silmarils for a good while until we get to the story of Baron. The story of Baron and Luthien is, as I've mentioned in another video, and I can't even remember which one because it was a bit of a side note, is, in a sense, the central story of all of Tolkien's Middle-earth legendarium because it has impacts both in the First Age and all the way into the Third Age. And that's kind of where this video is going. So, Baron, of course, is a man who ends up falling in love with Luthien, the daughter of an elven king in Middle-earth. And at this point, the war against Morgoth has been going on for a while, but it's mostly at a standstill because the elves don't have enough force to invade Morgoth's uh, underground fortress, but Morgoth hasn't built up enough uh, forces of his own to break out of the siege. So for a while, there's something of a lasting peace, but there's no good coming out of it. Baron is a early victim of Morgoth's first attempt to break out of the siege, which is partially successful, but not completely successful yet. And as a result, he's forced to leave his homeland and falls in love with Luthien, and Luthien's father, who is, of course, not really keen on the idea of his daughter marrying some man who just wanders in out of the wild, basically says, okay, you can marry her if you get a Silmaril. Baron says, challenge accepted. So, Baron and Luthien, through a huge, long series of events, eventually do make it into Morgoth's throne room, Luthien, with her magic, manages to put him to sleep. Baron cuts a Silmaril out of the crown, tries to cut a second one out, but his blade snaps and everybody starts waking up. 
So they basically have to run with the one Silmaril they have. And on their way out, they have to pass, which they had already passed once before getting in, uh, the great werewolf Karkaroth, who is the greatest werewolf ever in Middle-earth. Now, earlier on the way in, Luthien had put him to sleep the way she did Morgoth, but unfortunately, they didn't really have time to do that second time around, because on the way in, they were disguised, and on the way out, they're running for their lives, so... Karkaroth essentially tries to attack them. Baron holds up the Silmaril, hoping that it'll kind of daunt Karkaroth. Karkaroth just bites his hand off. And as I mentioned earlier, Silmarils, because they have the light of the trees, burn impure flesh. And so Karkaroth has this thing burning, literally burning his insides. So he just goes on a wild rampage. Baron and Luthien escape. Eventually, Baron and Luthien make it back to the land of her father and... So does Karkaroth, and they end up having a great hunt to finally kill the wolf, which is successful, except Baron also dies. And then Luthien, uh, before Baron actually totally dies, uh, they cut the Silmaril from Karkaroth's belly, give it to Baron in the one remaining hand that he has, and he gives it to Thingol, uh, Luthien's father, and Thingol basically relents, but of course it's too late, Baron dies. Luthien then dies of sorrow, goes to the halls of Mondos, where all the dead go eventually, and pleads for their release, and Mondos, being moved by pity, gives Baron and Luthien a chance to go back to Middle-earth, bo both as mortals, and when they do this, they uh, basically end up going to a far eastern part of uh, the kind of the scene of the action, not not as far east as where the elves arose originally, but in the realm of where Morgoth has some sway, it's pretty far east. And Thingol is left with the Silmaril at this point. So the next major thing that happens is where things start to go pretty downhill. So Thingol, father of Luthien, now has the Silmaril. As the result of one of the other major stories that happens in the Silmarillion, Hurin, Turin's father, who you may know from the children of Hurin, brings him a necklace, or depending on what stage of Tolkien's writing, a lot more, from the horde of Glaurung the dragon, who had been slain by Turin before Turin himself took his own life. Hurin brings this to Thingol, basically saying, you know, you're trashy, you, you know, messed up my son's life because he's angry and somewhat deluded by the lies of Morgoth, which everybody is at some point, it seems. Anyway, Thingol takes this necklace, and he has this idea. The necklace is really good by itself. The Silmaril is very beautiful by itself. And he thinks, what if I put the two together? Now, the necklace had originally been made by the dwarves for another elven king, and so he enlists the help of the dwarves to actually refashion the necklace and put the Silmaril in it. He promises them a pretty nice reward for doing so. And what ends up happening, because again, none of these things ever go well, uh, the dwarves want the necklace and the Silmaril because both are pretty awesome. They think the necklace is kind of rightfully theirs because they made it. And they also want the Silmaril because it's the Silmaril. It's, you know, it's the most amazing thing ever made. So Thingol, on his part, uh, takes, <laughs> takes the approach of, I'm not going to pay you what I promised I was going to pay you. I'm going to be kind of a dirtbag myself. 
This results in violence. The dwarves kill Thingol. The kingdom of Doriath is essentially rendered inert because Melion, who had been protecting it, she's Thingol's wife, and has she is a Maya who is powerful enough to keep Morgoth out. She, in her sorrow, leaves, but she takes, uh, well, she doesn't take the silver. What happens is the dwarves escaping from Doriath bring their treasure with them back, trying to reach their own homes in the east. Baron and the elves with him ambush them and take the necklace with the Silmaril, which he gives to Luthien. So for a while, it comes back into the possession of Baron and Luthien. Eventually, of course, they're mortal. They both die. They pass it on to their son, Dior, who had been trying to reestablish the kingdom of Doriath. Now, the problem is the kingdom of Doriath had been earlier protected by Melian's magic. Now it's not. And because it's not, the sons of Feanor can now get into the kingdom of Doriath. They can't really be kept out. And because the Oath of Feanor is operative, they find out that this Silmaril is there. They wage war against the kingdom of Doriath and come to take the Silmaril by force, which they do. They kill Dior, but they don't actually quite get the Silmaril because his daughter escapes with it and flees uh, down the, the river and establishes something of a colony of elves who have escaped from that slaughter and it's there for a while. And what happens also roughly simultaneously is that Arendil and the refugees from Gondolin, which is another whole big story, also escape to roughly the same area. Arendil eventually marries Elwing. Arendil is trying to sail across the sea to Valinor, plead for essentially mercy from the Valar to help the elves in their war against Morgoth, because by this point in the story, things are going very badly. Morgoth has essentially taken over the entirety of the relevant sections of Middle-earth, and he can't make it because the Valar have put various different things in the way. There's islands that are kind of magically imbued. Uh, there's seas that are virtually impossible to navigate. Basically, they've made it impossible for anybody to get there. So Arendil and many others before him have no luck. While he's trying to accomplish this, the sons of Feanor realize the Silmaril is now down here. So they go and they make war again, and again they uh, kill a lot of elves. And of, of course, this is just kind of a long stretch that I've mentioned in a couple other videos of it doesn't work in the end because, again, Elwing, what she does when she realizes that all is lost, she throws herself into the ocean and presumably with the aid of Ulmo, the, the Vala of the Waters, who is the one Vala who is trying to help the Noldor, uh, she turns into a seagull. She flies and eventually finds Arendil's ship. So at that point, the Silmaril is given to Arendil. He wears it on his brow. And with the Silmaril, he actually manages to get past the magic islands, the, she the seas that they had made impassable, and finally arrives at Valinor. And when he comes to Valinor, he sets foot on the Undying Lands. And as a result, he is never allowed to go back to 
mortal lands in the Middle Earth. So, but he, the he, his message actually does work. The Valar decide, okay, we are finally going to step in, do something about Morgoth, and rescue the elves. Since he, since Arendil can't go back to Middle Earth, what they do is they say, you and Elwing can take your ship, and we're going to hallow it such that it can fly in the skies. And Arendil then becomes the star Arendil because of the Silmaril on his brow. He's bright enough that when he sails in the sky, his star is actually, I mean, his, his ship actually looks like a star. And that signals Morgoth's defeat. When the star of Arendil finally rises, it ends up being a sign of hope to those who are still in Middle-earth because it's a new light. And light has always been kind of a sign of hope. The sun originally rising, the moon originally rising, the stars coming out, all of those have been signs of hope throughout the Silmarillion story. So Arendil rises as a star, and that is a sign of hope. Now, the last connection, of course, is precisely because Arendil is a star, at the end of the Silmarillion, he continues to sail the skies as a star. And that ends up connecting with the Lord of the Rings because when Galadriel gives the file to Frodo that he uses in several different places in the story, uh, it's a light where no, when all other lights go out, it is the light of Arendil captured in the, the pool or mirror of Galadriel. And essentially that's, he's ca literally carrying the light of a Silmaril, which is a light from the original two trees of Valinor. And because of that, that's why the file of Galadriel has the power that it has. And that's, again, why the Baron and Luthien story is kind of the central story in the entire arc, because that's what allows for that star and that starlight to eventually come to Frodo all the way at the end. And Sam even mentions this at the time. They're talking about the fact that, you know, the great stories don't ever seem to end. And he says, well, as a matter of fact, you're carrying around the light of the Silmaril from Baron and Luthien. And that it's, it's one of those references. If you haven't read the Silmarillion, you don't get it. And that's part of the reason I wanted to make this video is so that, you can trace that history because that's what the Silmarillion really is all about, ultimately, is the Silmarils. And you can trace that history all the way down to the Lord of the Rings itself. So, that's the history of the Silmarils. I'll stop there. Oh, wait, I'm actually not done. Remember, there's two other Silmarils to talk about. The other two Silmarils, which remained in Morgoth's crown, were, of course, retaken when the Valar come and overthrow Morgoth at the end of the First Age. What happened to those Silmarils? They should have been taken back to Valinor, and that was the plan. The remaining sons of Feanor, most of whom had died by that point, uh, there, were, there were only two left at this point, and they made their claim against the Valar who came and overthrew Morgoth, and they basically said, we're sticking to our oath, give us the Silmarils, and the Valar basically said, nope, can't have them. And, of course, they didn't have the force to take them, but on the way back to Valinor at one point, while everybody's encamped and most everybody's asleep, they managed to steal the Silmarils and make their way out of the camp. The Valar just basically let them go when they realize what's happened. Now, what ends up happening, interestingly enough, as a, again, the consequence of the Silmarils burning the hands of the impure or the evil, 
both of them find that they can't stand the Silmarils. They've got them, but they can't keep them because they themselves have made themselves so evil in their pursuit because they've killed so many fellow elves and all these other things. So what they end up doing, one of them throws his Silmaril into the ocean and the other casts himself with the Silmaril into a chasm with lava at the bottom. And so the final resting places of all the Silmarils are the air, the sea, and the earth, appropriately enough. So that's where the story of the other two Silmarils ends. And that brings us to a true close to this video. So that's the history of the Silmarils in Middle-earth, as far as Tolkien ever wrote it. It's interesting because if you read some of the earlier versions of the Silmarillion stories, the Silmarils were not nearly the central focus that they become in the latest versions that essentially were published with some changes and references to older material by Christopher Tolkien in the Silmarillion that we have today. One of these days I'm going to do some videos on those older versions and kind of show the development. And I'm also going to do some videos on the other stories in the Silmarillion that are connected because the Silmarillion really is all about how these different stories connect to the history of the Silmarils. And so I wanted to kind of give a brief history of the stones themselves before going into some of the other broader stories. So stay tuned for those. Uh, if you like this video, please give it a like, please share it around. If you want to learn more and, like I said, catch some of those videos where I do some synopses of the other stories, then subscribe to the channel, or you can follow me at JRRTLore on Twitter. And until next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namadie. No